It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave, and welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Once again, we appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we continue to move through the 2016 Division Three football offseason. Here's the Around the Nation podcast for May 2016. Uh, I'm Pat Coleman, and I'm joined by Keith McMillan, and it turned out to be a fairly typical year for Division Three football players getting NFL looks in the NFL draft and the post-draft aftermath over the course of the past weekend. A half dozen or so players getting signed to free agent contracts at last check, a few more getting invitations to rookie camps. No D3 players were drafted, but that's not surprising. That only happens about half the time these days, and last year with the Bucks drafting Hobart's Ali Marpet in the second round, that was definitely the exception. But as we've said frequently, as I turn to my virtual podcast partner 1,200 miles away, and definitely the NFL expert of our team, Keith, uh, you don't have to be drafted to have a successful NFL career out of Division Three. That's one of the remarkable things about draft weekend when a team picks seven or so players and gets excited about each one. And then a couple years later, that team's happy if like two or three are still key players for them. You know, so where do the rest of the players come from? Those are the undrafted free agents. And it's the, the side door to the NFL that most players from Division One FCS two and three enter from. Uh, occasionally a diamond in the rough like Tony Romo or James Harrison or Antonio Gates or Victor Cruz or Jason Peters is, is found. And not all those guys are lower division guys. But, uh, you know, for, for guys like um, you know, Division Three guys like, like Jeremy Urban, who we featured on last month's podcast, or Jason Trusnick or Jarrell Freeman, that side door can lead to a long NFL career. And, and, you know, Division Three players, as you'll hear in a few minutes here with Griffin Neal, are built for that grind. We come in with no sense of entitlement, knowing that work is the only way to achieve what we want. Shoot, when you go to school and you have to go to school because football is, is a labor of love and activity and not something that's paying your freight, you already have the mindset that it takes to last in the NFL. Not every D3 guy makes it. Most don't. But if they don't, it's because they didn't have the physical gifts or didn't get the opportunity uh, not because they weren't willing to do every last thing that it takes to have a job in the NFL. Obviously, as a player, you're in a better situation if you're able to get a free agent contract rather than just a tryout deal because, you know, if nothing else, you're getting a minimal signing bonus, and these days it seems to be about five or $6,000 for D3 guys. Uh, the ones getting contracts, uh, Oshkosh tight end Joe Summers with the Bears, Wesley quarterback Joe Callahan with the Packers, Wheaton tackle Matt Sneebold with the Falcons, Eau Claire guard Isaiah Cage with the Colts, Mount Union cornerback Trey Jones with the Chiefs, and Albright kicker Dan Sobolewski with the Jets. And as of this moment, we have 11 players who got tryout camp invites, most notably Mount Union receiver Roman Namdar, as well as Concordia Moorhead wide receiver Brandon Zilstra and Ohio Northern wide receiver Devin Price, whom you'll hear about later in the course of this podcast. Yeah, and quickly, those tryout camps are usually a three-day rookie camp uh, happening this weekend or the following weekend. You know, they may bring in dozens of guys and maybe four or five get signed to the 90-man roster. That 90-man roster is where the contract guys are that you mentioned, Pat, and that roster eventually gets whittled down to 75 and then to 53 by the time the season starts. So even though you get a lot of D3 guys uh, on on rosters at this point in the season, it's still a long grind for them to make it to game time in in September, October, November, and December. I tell you what, though, it's um it's always fascinating to me how some years the D three player with the best shot at making an NFL team at the in the fall is a known guy and a no brainer, someone we've talked about for years on the podcast, like Callahan or Namdar. And some year it's like Matt Snebold, the uh, 
uh, you know, the, the tackle from Wheaton, who the NFL will probably try to bulk up from the 285 pounds he was listed at last season. That's the fun of it. And of course, everyone listening to, uh, to our podcast is rooting for any and all D3 guys to make it. Yeah. And if you're not, you should be because uh, every one of those uh, paves an opportunity for somebody else. Uh, I'm especially happy to see the Bucks pick up another D3 player after they drafted Marpet, and then they gave Heidelberg receiver Dante Dye a shot as a rookie free agent last season. Dye even started the last three games for the Bucks last season, so it'll be interesting to see whether he and Namdar end up battling it out for a roster spot. And, you know, this is a good time to fill in listeners on the rules for, uh, for who can be on the practice squad and what it's like for those players. That's actually gone from, um, from eight guys to ten guys in uh in the past uh couple seasons in the nfl and those guys of course uh can practice with the team they, they generally don't travel with the team but anyway they're they're part of the team and they're the first guys to get called up when there's an injury during the season uh they also can be signed away by anyone else at any given time as long as they're offered a roster spot on the 53-man roster spot uh on the 53-man roster excuse me um and they're typically, you know, any given year, a couple of the D3 guys who may not make the 53-man the full NFL rosters do linger around for, for much of the season on the practice squad. And those guys get paid pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I wish somebody threw me a $6,000 signing bonus for doing anything, much less, uh, you know, get the, get the weekly NFL veteran minimum. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I guess for your next uh, journalism job, you can hope to get uh, a six thousand cent signing bonus i don't know i don't know what they're what they're handing out in journalism these days yeah well another topic for another podcast <laughs> our guests this month on the podcast are a former concordia moorhead quarterback and new orleans saints rookie griffin neal as well as ohio northern coach dean paul and new springfield head coach mike sarasolo I'd also like to take this time to mention that the uh, Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can influence decisions to replace turf, all sorts of things by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before we went to break. Think about it and drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. We're joined on the Around the Nation podcast by Griffin Neal, former quarterback for Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, and off-season free agent signee of the New Orleans Saints. Neal, uh, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. It is hard to picture making the leap from uh, Hildesheim, Germany in the German Football League 2 to playing for the New Orleans Saints, but uh, I'd like to talk first about how you end up in, the, in, the, in Germany in the first place. There's a lot of professional leagues in Europe. Uh, how did you end up with the Invaders? The coach, coach Roman, our head coach over in Germany, he he was here for 20 years or so coaching in the United States, and he knew the offensive line coach for uh, St. John's. I think his name is Jim Mater, maybe, or uh, some, something like that, uh, in the Mayak, St. John's from the Mayak. And mm -hmm. uh, he recommended my name to him, and I, I was hoping to be at this point in the NFL last year, but uh, I got a call from Coach Roman in January, and uh, I, if, if the NFL didn't work out, I, I didn't want to miss out on that opportunity in Germany to not only play football, but to see the world and get that experience. So I decided to uh, jump on that that uh, plane there and go there on a limb and uh, basically um, push this off to the next year and, um, you know, had a chance to grow up there and decide how, how to get here. So Yeah. <laughs> 
for those who are looking to play overseas, you know, for for guys who uh, you know for whom the NFL isn't necessarily the uh, the final end of their career, what's the right. what's the German league experience like? Uh, it's it's all the same in football as far as the rules. It's NCAA rules. Um, you just practice much much less. It's twice a week. Uh, some team we we had a film session, so three I guess, and then um, on the weekends you play. Uh, but other than that, you have a ton of free time to work out if you choose there's no mandatory weight room program or film sessions and um, I, I obviously worked out and spent my time doing that but um, and then you, you get a chance to meet meet all the guys be get friends with them hang out with them um, and then every third week second or third week on average uh, you, you have an off weekend so you're able to travel all over Europe which I took advantage of the travels very cheap over there um, and uh, you can see a lot, of, a lot of cool things, and build a lot of really good relationships. And I still talk to a couple of the teammates today. So, the um, I, I, did you recognize other Division three guys in the league, or recognize at least some of the schools that that guys came from? Uh, we actually played against uh, Cameron Smith. He played at um, Saint Olaf, so he was in the Mayak. So we played against him, and then uh, other than that. Uh, they'd just be D2 or you know D3 or NAIA kids, but uh, our running back actually played at ECU, East Carolina, so obviously recognize that school. Mm -hmm. um, but for the, you know who the Americans are because they have to wear A's on their jerseys, and you, you get to meet them and <laughs> you, be, okay. you play them twice a year, so you know you get to kind of be friends with them and ask them how their team treats them or you know how their city is, this and that. So it's fun, you know. You, as soon as the game is over, the first thing people do is have a beer and a cheeseburger up in the stands with the the, the, the crowd. So it's, it's kind of fun in that aspect. You get to meet people and hear everybody's stories. So definitely would encourage it to those who are thinking about it. If you have a little bit of adventure and you are just looking for a, you know, it's it was basically my study abroad, but I was getting to play football and I wasn't having to pay for it. So um, it's, it's a great experience. Um, if, if you're up to it and can uh, delay putting off your uh, career as far as work goes afterwards, or if the NFL is your ultimate goal, then obviously use that as a stepping stone like I did. So, Yeah, and so you returned to the States. Uh, I read you worked out with Xavier Rush, a guy who played for Tulane. He convinced you to, to come to Tulane's Pro Day and kind of tell us the story of uh, what happened there. Yeah, I moved to Arizona in December with my receiver, Brandon Zilstra. He played at Concordia with me, mm -hmm. um, so we trained together. But Xavier and, and my quarterback coach, Rudy Carpenter, um, is who I was down there training with. But um, Xavier kind of just stumbled into our lap in, in January. He uh, was there for only three weeks before he had to go back to, to, uh, to New Orleans and then he was in my position. He was an undrafted free agent. He was out a year because he tore his ACL, had a workout with the Eagles, and got signed two weeks after he left. So I was like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> how, how did you – like, you were just one of us two weeks ago. So we, we stayed in touch. He was really good to me. I was supposed to throw to him at uh, Tulane's Pro Day is how it all started. And um, he was – speaks to the person he is. He stayed in contact with me. He still said he'd try to get me in. Uh, said a few good things about me, this and that. The agent I was talking to at the time knew the head coach there, and I kind of went there on a limb. They said I could participate, but nobody knew who I was when I showed up there. I wasn't on any kind of list or anything. So 
Uh, that's kind of how that went. But Xavier and I still stay in touch to this day. Good, good friend of mine, and uh, definitely instrumental in where I am today. Yeah, and then you turned some heads, and and the Saints signed you. Basically, told them my story, and uh, they let me in. I was at the Saints facility, so I'm assuming the Saints had the final say. Um, and then I convinced them to let me do like the combine testing because the vertical, the broad jump, three cone, L drill, 40 yard dash, and uh, I do very well at those drills, especially for a quarterback. Um, so I was able to turn some heads during that and then through to the two running backs that were there. There was only two running backs, no receivers, <laughs> okay. um, and did, did well enough at that to get pulled aside by a few teams afterwards. And then the Saints, um, Jeff Ireland, um, he's their head college scout or director and uh, assistant general manager, basically told me that I impressed him. He had me meet the offensive coordinator and uh, quarterback coach and I had another private workout right after that with them for about 20 minutes and then uh, I was invited back three weeks ago for a, a local day Tulane's local day so they flew me in and I had a physical and then worked out had a basically a pro day a script of about 70 throws in front of uh, coach Peyton and Mr. Loomis the GM and uh, the rest of the Saints staff and Mr. Ireland and I was signed from there, so had two two workouts in front of the Saints, and it's kind of how it all unfolded. So, so what's uh, it what's it like right now for you? What are the what are the off seasons the things that you guys are doing, and what do the um, teams? Yeah, do? we started last last Monday. I, I haven't left since I signed three weeks ago, so I was just in the facility working out by myself. But it was pretty empty. Guys leave on the off seasons last Monday, so now it's just organized team lifting and conditioning and running and agility type drills so you know there's a few different sessions but I usually get here about 6:30 and uh, eat some breakfast and start lifting and training at 7:30 until about 10:30 11 and eat some lunch and then uh, study the rest of the day get this playbook down so uh, it's definitely pretty cool met all the guys on the team uh, they treat me very well um, just like anybody else in the locker room and uh, <clears throat> Couldn't be happier where I'm at. The culture here is great. Um, people are really friendly, and it's fun, very fun. So, For, for guys who are in your position, uh, first of all, obviously in, in Division Three, almost anybody who gets to the NFL comes through as, comes through free agency, isn't drafted. So you're going to be a lot of guys who are in similar situations as you, a lot of guys who don't get, uh, who don't get in the first time around and still might uh, come back for a second or a third year uh, or second year like you. What's your advice to those guys who are fighting to be in the same sort of position that you're in right now? My advice would be just make a plan and, and stick to it. Brandon and I, held each other accountable we showed up in Arizona I did in December he did it in January when he graduated and through Rudy my Rudy Carpenter my quarterback coach you know he obviously gave me a he played in the NFL so he gave me a ton of inside information and how to once you get there be successful what we need to do this and that um, on the field work um, and boardroom work as far as understanding the NFL playbook and why you do certain things um, but making a plan and sticking to it and just being dedicated is really all you can do. Um, Brandon and I basically worked out there for four months just praying we'd get an opportunity and networking to the best of our abilities. And we've met so many people through Rudy and through a few other people, Warren Anderson, the guy at Rehab Plus, uh, that's where we train. Um, so just be a sponge, soak things up. 
um, never, no matter if it's good or bad, you know, advice, take the good, leave the bad, and um, you never know who you're talking to, so, uh, or what it, what it could be. So, you know, Brandon and I, we, we went to four CFL tryouts um, through, from February 1st, we trained all of January, December, uh, February 1st up until my pro day, March 17th. So we were, you know, we drove to Las Vegas and we we're fortunate that uh, a few of the tryouts were in Arizona near us. So we were driving around, we were in California training and, you know, we were in bed at 10 o'clock every night. We weren't out, you know, at the clubs or the bars and uh, we were eating healthy and just working out and babysitting at night to make some money. So um, really, you know, you just meet the right people, um, just give it your all, so whether it works out or not, you can look yourself in the mirror and say you gave it your best shot, your best shot. Um, and that's all, all we really set out to do. Don't, don't go into something half-heartedly and, um, you know, say you wish you would have done this or wish you would have done that, and uh, everything usually works out for the best. By the time that uh, this podcast uh, finally drops, Brandon's uh, will probably know at least a little bit something about his future. But what do you think of uh, his chances having having played with him at Concordia, having worked out with him over the last few months? Uh, yeah, and just seeing guys here at the New Orleans Saints, uh, Brandon should definitely be in an NFL organization, whether it's a practice squad to get a year to develop, or you know that could be what I end up doing too. He definitely deserves an opportunity. I, I know the type of athlete he is and type of work he puts in, but uh, he's has CFL teams waiting for him, basically. Um, but he's going to wait till the draft is over, and they'll give him a few days because that's when he can be picked up as a free agent or because um, right now he's not eligible for that. Mm -hmm. And as he'll get a, basically is what would happen is he'd get a rookie mini camp invite, which is a, which I'll be attending, but he'll be there on like a tryout basis. And if he does well those three days, that the team will sign him afterwards um, as, as how it will work out. So there's definitely a, uh, there's been a few teams that have shown interest to who he talked to after his pro day and regional combine and, um, been in touch with emails. You know, we were emailing teams. We had a list of 50 teams. We probably sent four rounds, hundreds of emails to these teams, just hoping someone would, you know, email us back. And a few teams did email him back. So, you know, both praying that and families are praying that he'll get his opportunity, and, and hopefully he will. Otherwise, he'll he'll for sure be in the CFL. So we we set out that if one of us made either the CFL or the NFL, we'd consider it an accomplishment. So by all means, we've succeeded that benchmark, and um, hopefully in a couple of days we'll, we'll know a little bit more about where he, he'll be either in the NFL or the CFL. And as we welcome back in Keith McMillan, uh, Griffin Neal, like a couple of other D3 alumni in recent years, such as Coe's Fred Jackson, Cortland's Arkel Treluck, taking a bit of an unorthodox route to getting his look from the NFL. Yeah, the things that really stand out from Griffin, who was a significant player in a top D3 conference for a playoff caliber team, but never an All-American, is the drive, the, the self-made nature of the journey to the NFL, and the way he did it for all the right reasons. The approach to going over and playing in Germany, you know, he was there to play, but he's there for the experience as well. That stands out. Uh, but also the dedicate... The, <laughs> Also, the dedication of Griffin and Brandon Zilstra to move to Arizona and make this pact to pursue their dreams. And if one of them makes it, then it was worth it for both of them. That's powerful stuff. 
And look, both of these guys are 6'4", 220. So the NFL is not just going to happen for any D3 athlete who tries. you got to have some part athletic ability, some part college production. A lot of times they say you have to dominate in college if you're not coming from uh, from from the you know the, the top level and you know and some part try hard that probably isn't so much taught as it is innate so for these d3 athletes you know those of you listening who who are trying to relate listen to what griffin neal said about networking about one open door leading to another and then seizing those opportunities you know he talked his way into a pro day which ended up getting a, a chance uh, for him to throw in front of the saints but if he's not prepared and if he hadn't been preparing all along you know that opportunity doesn't doesn't uh doesn't work out well for him you know that i mean that's all walks of life kind of wisdom not just football wisdom and we know it works because we've seen the jarell freemans and the fred jacksons bounce around and then get their opportunity in the nfl and stick just looking over the numbers that uh, neil put up in gfl2 that's where the hildesheim invaders were in 2015 before they won the league and got promoted to gfl1 i know we'll, we'll do the german football league podcast on some other time um, but uh, Griffin Deal, 30 touchdowns, five interceptions. He was uh, through, uh, completed 67% of his passes, threw for 233 yards a game. He also rushed for 25 touchdowns, rushed for 767 yards. Um, you know, maybe not the most impressive player to come to the NFL right now out of the uh, German Professional Football League, but uh, the, the man who led the Hildesheim Invaders is uh, certainly getting a shot here. Yeah, and I think, again, for, for those of us who follow D3, no matter the route, whether it's someone who gets drafted in the second round or the fourth round or the sixth round, uh, or someone who has to take a circuitous route to get there, you know, all of us kind of live vicariously through those guys, whether it's, you know, like I said, it's, it could be what Griffin Neal did. It could be Eric Rogers going to play in the CFL and then landing with the 49ers, uh, you know, the wide receiver from Cal Luther. And there's so many uh, different guys who, who, uh, I guess they're not so many. Maybe that's not the right way to say it. There are a few guys who are still kind of living the dream for all the rest of us. I'm going to throw one name at you, uh, Keith, that I found on the Hildesheim roster for this upcoming season, and I haven't included this in the rundown intentionally, but I talked with uh, Neil about this after the uh, after the interview ended. The guy who is replacing him, I guess, at quarterback, or at least is taking one of the quarterback spots on the roster next year, is Matt Lefevre. Do you remember him? The name rings a bell. Yeah, same here. I had to Google Matt Lefevre to figure out why I knew that name. He played for the good Western Connecticut teams, which tells you how long ago this was, 1999-2000. Uh, wow. Matt Lefevre played for Western Connecticut. And, yeah, he is still uh, knocking around and playing professional football. I guess it wouldn't be playing for pizza. Would it be playing for bratwurst or something um, over there in Germany rather than Italy? Yeah, I don't know. Is that, uh, that Pasqualoni-era Western Connecticut or not quite that far back? Oh, see, now you got me back. I have no idea. All right. <laughs> Who was coaching Western Connecticut in 1999? Is that the question? Yeah, I should know this because I had I went to college with a uh, I went to high school with a guy who ended up there. But anyway, well, another another story for a even more obscure D3 podcast. <laughs> for uh, one of those days when we're doing uh, the outtakes, let me see if we even have because some of the old coaches we don't have correct on the website. I have Bob Suris listed as the 2000 coach. I don't think that's correct. I, I think that's uh, just a copy and paste from like 2005 or something. Uh, well, John Burrell was in 2005, so uh, you know whatever. Um, but that's uh, yeah, it's just interesting to see uh, all the guys who are uh, indeed still out there. 
Dean Paul is one of the coaches in this business who makes me feel old. That's because he's entering his 13th season at Ohio Northern, and I first met him a couple of years earlier when he was coaching at Thomas More. So, uh, first of all, Coach, uh, thanks for that. Thanks for making me feel old, and also uh, welcome to the Around the Nation podcast. Appreciate it, Pat. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Yeah, you guys are coming off a, a nice season. I, I guess, you know, obviously this is much of this is five months ago now, but uh, nine wins, including the uh, first playoff trip and first playoff win for the program since 2010. A good bounce back uh, into contention after four years of winning six, seven games, a year of winning four games. What does that do for the Polar Bears heading into 2016? Well, we feel like we're building momentum. You know, we felt like uh, 2013 was a, was a good year for us that was, we were kind of on the verge. Uh, we had a couple close losses with a 7-3 season, so we feel like we were kind of knocking on the door of making that move to the next level, and it was good to see us uh, continue to build the momentum. And we know it'll be tough moving forward, but we're hopeful we can you know, be able to move forward from a, a really good season and, and build even further. Three seasons ago, the conference turned over uh, five of the ten head coaching positions, and one of those schools has already changed coaches again, and, and there was another change this offseason when Mike Hallett left Heidelberg. How, is, how have these changes, this uh, kind of coaching upheaval, shown up on the field over the past few seasons? Well, probably the biggest thing is just some of the styles of play have uh, just continued to evolve. Um, I think would probably be one of the biggest things. And, you know, whenever there's coaching changes, you know the administrations are making commitments to try to, enhance and better their programs so you know that creates challenges uh you know for us but uh i think the continuity also is is a real advantage for us and i think that's been something that's helped us uh, make some adjustments that we needed to internally to uh, kind of get on the right track yeah, I mean, obviously several of those were struggling programs, right? And they haven't all necessarily bounced back. But, you know, once upon a time, what you guys at Ohio Northern did last year was the norm, right? Winning a playoff game is the OAC runner-up. Um, then they went through, you know, the conference went through this stretch from 2007 to 2013, where it only happened once when you guys did it in 2010. Um, what's the state of the OAC these days? It, it seems like maybe it's not as deep as it had been before. Well, I guess I understand why people say that, but at the same time, I don't think I really buy into that, to be honest with you, because I think uh, whether you look at two years ago, the team, you know, John Carroll had where, you know, they were, I, I believe, a legitimate top five team and they beat Wheaton on the road. And, uh, you know, I think we had a really good football team last year. But then if you go beyond us, Pat, and, you know, look last year, John Carroll had a heck of a football team. Uh, you know, Heidelberg ended up five and five and they really, for all intents and purposes, should have beat Cortland, who was a really good team. So I think there's a number of things you can look to, and, and I understand people uh, making – I understand the perception a little bit, but I think there's some other things that uh, that I see, whether it's the quality of player in the league and some of the guys that you – know, we have guys in this league that are second-team all-conference that I think people would be shocked uh, to see that they're not a first-team all-league guy and, and just uh, you know some of the, the overall quality of uh, player – is still very, very good. And I, and I understand that, you know, if you go back to the mid-2000s that, you know, it's hard to make those comparisons. But I still think that there's some really good teams in our league. The um, Obviously, the fact that Mountain Union stands at the top of your league and has stood at the top of your league for 20-some years, something like that, um, you know, changes uh, or affects the perception of the league. But it has to affect, obviously, you guys uh, on the ground, I guess, for lack of a better term as well. What's it like uh, trying to compete and trying to, you know, win guys away from Mountain Union? And then also to all the D2 programs that have kind of popped up in the in the state of Ohio over the last few years. It's a great question, a great point, because, yeah, I mean, Mount, Mount deserves the all of the uh, 
you know, just the attention that they've, uh, you know, been able to, to garner. I mean, they certainly have earned that. But uh, it is, you know, that is a challenge sometimes, certainly in recruiting that, uh, you know, some kids, uh, you know, certainly uh, uh, that gets their attention as it, as it should. So it is uh, certainly uh, something we deal with uh, constantly. Uh, we want to be in that neighborhood where we're battling against them and we know it's going to be certainly a, a tough, but uh, we don't back down from that. And, and that's something we look forward to. But I think the other point you made there about the Division II schools is a huge part of it. And in fact, I think if you turn the clock back about 10 years, it's pretty amazing. You know, we've studied some of the numbers in the state of Ohio. I think there's within three hours of our campus, I believe there's about seven Division II programs that didn't even exist when we first got here as a coaching staff. So, you know, if you take an average roster of around, you know, what they bring in, uh, you know, 30 guys or somewhere 30, 40 incoming players, you're talking about a few hundred recruits that are within three hours of our campus that typically would have been guys looking at the OAC that, uh, you know, now are not. So they, they were looking at uh, maybe upper level OAC teams and now we're, we're having a little bit tougher time. So that's, that's why getting out of state is important. You know, the football in the state of Ohio is still great as always, but you know, we do have to get out of state to get some of the difference makers because we believe that, you know, the key to being a go from being a good team to being a great team is you, ha- you have to have some difference makers that either develop or you recruit. Uh, and what's the recruiting profile for you guys like? I mean, I, I look at the roster and I see, you know, what I think is fairly typical now for a D3 school over the past few years. A lot of guys from around your area, but also kind of reaching out into Florida. Where else are the places that you guys are looking to bring kids to Ohio Northern? Well, one of the great things about our school is we have this kind of unique mix of uh, the professional, you know, programs. We have, you know, an accredited business college, engineering, pharmacy, a law law school. So we're that helps us pull a little bit further away. Some of those uh, unique niche programs, nursing, construction management. So that helps us go a little further. But uh, you're right, we're about still probably about 80% within three hours. But we have approximately 20 to 25 young men from Florida. That's been good for us. We've been able to pull a few guys from the West Coast due to our academic program. So we're, uh, we're able to do that, I think, partly because a uh, real attractive university academically and also a good program. Um, I want to talk about, uh, you know, Ohio Northern's, uh, you know, s- small pipeline to the NFL, but at least a little bit. And I want to talk first about, so Devin Price, uh, obviously a standout wide receiver for you guys. This is not going to come out until after the draft is over and, and probably after uh, a lot of the guys who don't get drafted have uh, have signed on with uh, with NFL programs as well. But what's his, uh, you know, what is his kind of route to the NFL or his uh, chances looked like here as he's uh, worked through here the offseason? Well, I guess the best thing that I, could, uh, that I can compare it to is just over time, uh, you know, just considering the amount of traffic we've had with uh, NFL teams, uh, I, I'd say it's it's promising that um, that somebody's going to give them an opportunity. We've had probably at least 15 to 18 teams uh, either call me or request video through email. Uh, you know, I think he had a great opportunity at the uh, Bowling Green Pro Day. He performed very well. Uh, so we feel like, you know, his agent, uh, thinks he has an outside shot to get drafted. You know, I never know what to think about that. Uh, you know, it's hard to say, but I think, you know, we're, we're just really hoping somebody gives him a chance in, in a free agent environment at, at the minimum. And you guys, of course, have a player who's knocked around the NFL for several years in Jason Tresnick, a guy who I actually, uh, you and I had a conversation uh, via Twitter earlier in the early in the NFL season last year. Uh, and I was wondering if he was uh, still going to get a, a shot to play and then not until 
week, I don't know, week 12 or week 11 or something like that, he got picked up by the Vikings. So it looked like he was not quite done yet either. Yeah, exactly. It was year number nine for him. I mean, it's pretty amazing, a, a free agent signee to play nine years in the NFL. And his goal is to get, get that 10th year. And right now he's kind of waiting to see how things kind of shake out. Um, you know, after finishing the year with the Vikings, he's in that kind of uh, that time frame right now where he's waiting to hear kind of back from after after the draft and after everybody kind of works through some of their free agent you know signings. So hopefully somebody's going to give him an opportunity to get that 10th year. Looking forward to 2016, you guys uh, graduate your workhorse running back, three of your top four pass catchers, one of your quarterbacks transferred out. Uh, I would guess, at least looking on paper, your team's going to be a little more uh, oriented on defense this time around. Yeah, we'll be a little more experienced defensively. We're looking at probably about nine starters on defense and several really good players. Uh, you know, offensively, I think, you know, replacing, the, you know, we'll replace three linemen. That'll be a, definitely a challenge. And as you mentioned, the running back, uh, Justin Magazine and Devin. Uh, but we do have an all-conference tight end coming back. He's second-team all-league. We have a first-team all-league receiver. Uh, he made first-team all-league as a return man, but he was also a really excellent receiver, Reed Allen. So we have two experienced guys there, and then we have you know a quarter starting quarterback returning. So I think we have some piece of the puzzle to build on there. We will definitely be younger, but we feel like we've we've got some explosive guys that hopefully are ready to take on a greater role. I feel like I'm almost contractually obligated to get in one last mention of Ricardo Johnson III on this podcast. So uh, the guy's mo- <laughs> he's moving on to a D2 school in his hometown in Minnesota. That's his third school in three years. Uh, what did you think when he said he was transferring out? I really like Ricardo. Uh, I really do. Um, you know, I understand it's a you know, tough situation to, to come in. He played well when he got in there last year. And, you know, he has two years of football left. And, uh you know, I think really for him, his father uh, really thought a lot about, uh, you know, do you roll the dice and battle for the starting job again? Uh, you know, obviously, Will Freed did a heck of a job when he was in there last year, and so did Ricardo. But, you know, we weren't going to make any promises to anybody. There's going to be open competition. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, Will was leading the OAC in passing as a freshman after six games. So we weren't, it's going to be an open competition. So it's unfortunate. But uh, Ricardo's a great young man. I wish him nothing but the best. So you guys ended the season uh, with a second-round loss at Wisconsin Oshkosh. John Carroll opens up the season with Oshkosh. What do you think about, obviously, your your very early thoughts on the uh, John Carroll-Wisconsin Oshkosh opener? You know, I think Carroll's going to have a real, good, really good team. I think they have a lot back on offense. Um, you know, Wisconsin Oshkosh was a very impressive team. Um, you know, we, we had a, I think it was 14-7 with about two minutes to go in the half, and we gave up a third and 12 like throwback for a touchdown that kind of really gave them a little little momentum going to halftime. And they're just really very, very good team that you just can't make those kind of mistakes. But um, it'll be an interesting game. I mean, I think Carroll, John Carroll will be good. Like I said, a lot of guys back on offense, a few holes they definitely have to fill on defense. But I think they'll have a really good football team next year. And from what I gathered, based on who should be coming back for both teams, you know, it could be a really interesting game. I have to say, as a just as a D3 fan in general, but also someone obviously who follows at a very high level, I'd like to see as many OAC Wyatt games as possible. So, uh, you know, just feel free to go out and find uh, River Falls again sometime or uh, or Stout or Lacrosse or whatever going forward. Well, that'd be a great opportunity. Maybe we could see you, right? Maybe if we get out there, maybe we'll, we'll see you at a game maybe one of these Tough couple of years for Ohio Northern, capped by a bit of a playoff run this past season. I guess the Polar Bears are back on the map, at least for now. You know, one of the reasons why D3 football has remained fascinating to me over the years is because no one can ever conquer it. 
for every every mountain union has its white water and everywhere else has these challenges which are constantly evolving and they're never the same year to year. So finally, ONU figures out how to catch the mount back in 2005, and then 17 new programs move into Ohio. And, and this is ONU, the birthplace of the pistol offense. So you've got this evolution where now the school is recruiting Florida, and the game is changing, the schemes from year to year, and they have to deal with Otterbein being playoff caliber, and then Baldwin Wallace, and then Heidelberg has this resurrection, and then John Carroll had gone away for almost a, you know, a decade, and now they're back, and all of them are all chasing Mount Union. I, I find it fascinating. I really do, because there's never a point where where any of them have mastered the challenge, and so we all have to learn to enjoy the ride, the the steps on the journey. And you know, and for us, for you know, maybe what what Dean uh, was saying about the OAC, the top half at least, is that there's really good football being played beyond the number two teams, and our yearly conference rankings uh, would tend to agree with that. Yeah, indeed. The the rest of the top half of the OAC is typically pretty strong, um, not just number two. But in recent years, it's really been the bottom half has been pretty dismal. And it'll be interesting to see this year if some of those teams that we talked about that changed coaches a few years ago, like Wilmington and Marietta and Capital, which changed coaches again, whether any of them can start to put something together. I completely forgot Capital in that rundown of teams who had been on the rise at so, one point. Yeah, once upon a time, they didn't suck. They were top five at one point. That was Jim Collins. Yeah, that was the Jim Collins. And uh, oh, see, I started a sentence I can't finish. Wait, uh, but it, it is kind of a nice Rocky segue Pentello. because you started you started the interview with Dean saying how old it makes you feel, and as all these kind of factoids bounce around our heads, uh, how long we've been now uh, we've been following D three closely. Now it uh, does make us makes me feel a little bit old. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I, I guess that would have been fascinating to ask Dean. And this is totally on me for not thinking of it until after you completed the interview. Is what it's like to go up against and constantly be beaten by your alma mater, Dean Paul. For folks out there who don't know, was a star running back at Mount Union from '88 to '92, I believe. And then he coached at a couple of different stops along the way, including Allegheny and Worcester. And then he became the head coach at Thomas More, where uh, where we first met him, as you alluded to. It's hard to believe he's in his 13th year already at ONU. You know, at what point do you become a polar bear through and through instead of a purple raider? Or are, or are you always a bit of both, you know, even on game day? All right, probably not on game day, right? He's, he's like ONU head coach on game day, but he's like he's always a, uh, a purple raider. And then, you know, you contrast that with our next guest who spent 15 years on the sidelines and finally gets to lead his alma mater and never has to play against it. Uh, I did have a thought about asking Dean Paul a question, something along those lines, that I didn't want to rub in the fact that, yeah, you were the last team to beat Mount Union, and by the way, that was 2005. Well, you know he's going to listen to this, so now you have rubbed it in. Ah, fair point. Finally, on this edition of the Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Mike Sarasolo, the new head football coach at Springfield College, entering his first year in the role after spending the past 15 years as offensive coordinator. Mike, uh, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. And congratulations on the new role. You know, you're stepping in for a, a highly respected coach and Mike DeLong, one of the winningest active coaches in D3 football at the time of his retirement. And of course, that's the guy you played under as well. So no pressure, right? No, none whatsoever. He he told me the other day, "Be careful what you wish for." So, <laughs> and uh, but he's been uh, unbelievably helpful making this transition. Obviously, he's been stopping by, has come to some practices out in the spring, and uh, been a great resource for me. Obviously, to tap into, we had a great relationship, and from the recruiting to playing to you know coaching here, and uh, 
So uh, obviously it's been invaluable to have him around and help me out make this transition as, as seamless as possible. Like many coaches are around Division Three, not just in football, you're coaching at your alma mater. In, in your view, is there something special about Division Three itself that makes coaching your old program more attractive or at least makes it more likely to occur? Yeah, I think the thing that always drew me back to Springfield College was the people and, and my memories that I had while playing here. And I'm sure, like many other people that go back to their alma maters, they feel the same way. But this place is so unique and the type of kid that goes here and what we're trying to do here you know, both educationally and, and athletically that, uh, you know, it, it was always a draw to say, hey, if I ever had the opportunity to go back there, I'd love to. And uh, and when it came up back in 2001, after they just had one of the best years in, uh, in college history here at Springfield, uh, when they went to the Elite Eight and Coach McKenney left and, and went up to Maine Maritime, uh, you know, I jumped at the opportunity and, and you know, called Coach Long and wanted to know what he was doing with the position. I was down at Mansfield University in Pennsylvania and Hey, chance to get back home and uh, be a little bit closer to family and be uh, be around people I believe in and, and the type of program I believe in. And with uh, Coach DeLong and Coach Hollick obviously still there at that point, and 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 they were here my entire time playing as well. So it just it was something that uh, you know I, I jumped at the opportunity to get back here and and be around people that, like I said, I really believe in. And you've been the offensive coordinator for some time, uh, and, and Springfield obviously really well known for running the triple option, having one of the most prolific rushing totals in D3 on an annual basis. So now that you're in charge, is changing the offensive scheme on the table, or are you wedded to continuing with this? No, this is our identity. This is who we are, and this is what we're going to do and continue to do, and we're going to be a, an under-center triple team and, and just try to continue to get better at it day by day. And you know, our philosophy is 24-7, 365 with the triple, and, and uh you know, so our kids buy into it, and that's what we talk about during recruiting. And and we've had great success over the years, from you know Coach Manello implementing it back in 1987, all the way you know through Coach Anderson and Coach McKenney, like I said. And then I had the opportunity to take it over. So it's a it's a, it's part of who we are as far as the football program, and it's it's our identity in New England, and uh, and hopefully far beyond because of what we've been doing with it for so many years, and. Uh, you know, and the, and the type of kids we want to recruit with that style of offense. Um, you know, I think kids buy into it as far as the opportunity to run the football, the opportunity to play downhill up front. Uh, wide receivers sometimes a little bit hairy, here, yeah. getting a few of those kids here. But uh, well, we've got some great ones here right now that, uh, that have big play potential. And uh, so we're excited with the, the group of kids coming back. And, uh, but I, I think it's, it's just who we are, and we don't want to change that. Well, and you specified too. I noticed that under center uh, triple option too, because that's uh, you know the I don't I don't know if I'm qualified to say what uh, what the new wave is or what the rage is, but obviously teams have been trying to spread it out and run it out of the shotgun and do all sorts of different things with it. Yeah, yeah, and it's fun to watch those teams. And we we got into it a little bit a couple of years ago. Uh, we went out and that was kind of our big research project, and because uh, you know we. We like uh, want to wrinkle a couple new wrinkles involved in some things, and uh, we got away from what we were good at, and I think it hurt us uh, as far as you know, continue to, to improve and 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 get more in depth with our under center stuff, and and be great at that. So we became average at a lot of things, and uh, and we didn't have our identity, and that's why we two years ago said we're we're never going in the shotgun again, and we're going to be under center triple, and and that's who we are, and uh, you know, I, again, it's. A, it goes back into the recruiting and the philosophy of the program and, and, and kind of how I was brought up through Springfield College and Coach Long and, and, and what we were doing way back when. And, and uh, everything comes full circle and everybody's running some type of option. Now it's just how you get there 
is a little bit different from you know the pistol to the shotgun stuff, but it's all variations of option. It's just that our variation is going to be under center. One of the things that Keith and I noticed, or maybe even were told some time ago, and have kind of repeated this ever since, is that uh, Springfield specifically, and you know other triple option teams, maybe more generally, uh, you guys tend to struggle when you have a first year starting quarterback, no whether whether he's a sophomore or a senior, and that you know that second year for that kid, and that their third, if there is one, uh, they're often more successful, and sometimes wildly more successful. Does that match with what you see as you work with this offense up close? And if so, why is it so difficult to pick up for a first year guy? Yeah, without a doubt, I think, uh, you know, sometimes you can, you can hide some kids positionally, uh, you know, if they're inexperienced, but at the quarterback position with, uh, with the triple option is, is just the live reads are so hard to, to get during, uh, you know, spring drills and during, you know, when you're on scout team and things like that. So the live repetition and full speed reps and, and being able to read a dive key and a pitch key and, you know, being able to recognize perimeters and how the defenses adjust and things, it takes a little while and, and uh, it takes a couple times of, of getting uh, getting hit a few times when you miss that read to understand <laughs> that the game is a lot quicker, you know, than, than it is watching film and uh, looking at playbooks and things along that line. So sometimes it's hard to replicate when they're, when they're transitioning, you know, for, and they're looking at a scout team and they're, you know, in spring drills or in, uh, preseason drills you know with the defense and you know they've got a yellow jersey on and it's like hey don't take them down to the ground but uh then all of a sudden that first game comes around and you're getting taken down to the ground so um that that transition for some of those young kids it takes a few games that the speed of it is just so different than than what we can practice um and and again it that's that's also why we do it is i think some teams can sometimes struggle defensively just replicating the speed of the game of, of how fast the fullback is coming at them and how, how hard the offensive line is coming off and, you know, attacking with the, the, the quarterback in the alley and whatnot. So um, that was, that's the toughest thing for our, our young quarterbacks is transitioning is how quick things actually happen. Uh, and like I said, sometimes other offenses, you can, you can get away with it, handing the ball off a few times and whatnot. You know, it's such a difficult position no matter what you're running because the quarterback, you know, whether or not you have a good quarterback is going to, pretty much determine the outcome of how successful you are offensively. Yeah. Uh, you guys have Jake Eglinton back to run the offense this year. Um, but uh, I, as I'm looking back through, you know, leading ball carriers from 2015, a lot of seniors on that list. So a lot of, uh, a lot of guys are going to be getting more opportunities or different opportunities. Yeah. And Jake did a great job for us and uh, he's partnered up right now with our, our fullback coming out of the spring as a, one of his high school teammates. So, we're expecting great things from them, and we've got some some new kids on the on the outside that got a lot of a lot of uh, reps last year in game and practice. That uh, uh, as far as the halfback position goes, that we're really excited about, and uh, you know, just, just looking for them to continue to improve and and get a little bit better each day. But uh, we're excited with uh, with the direction that that those guys are heading in, and again, we've got two good receivers outside as well that uh, that we haven't had in a in a while as far as being able to stretch the field vertically as well. Uh, which hopefully will open up some things underneath as far as with the with the run game uh, because it gives us a little bit of a, a pass threat as well. We didn't throw the ball as well as we would have liked to have last year, and that's something that we've you know put a put a lot of practice time and a lot of research in to try to develop some some simpler and, and a little bit more basic concepts so that uh, you know the kids can pick those up and, and have a chance to succeed you know come game day. Well, and you guys tra- uh, transitioned from a senior quarterback at the beginning of the season to a, a freshman pretty early on, so I assume that kind of affected uh, the, the the playbook was probably more designed for a guy who had uh, who had run it a little more. Yeah, and and you know Jake again, he jumped in, um, 
you know, midway through that second game of the year. And so it was, you know, the, there were some growing pains there early. But uh, again, he did a great job. He's, he's, he's uh, really jumped into the offense and embraced his role within the team and, and uh, becoming more of a leader within the offensive unit as well. Uh, and with that position, obviously, I think they've, they've got to have a lot of different qualities to be able to succeed. And, and he's starting to embrace that. Initially, I think he, he was kind of like, whoa, this is happening. And now he's like, okay, I got it. I can figure this out and uh, get uh, take a, a, another step each day to progressing and being a little bit better and being a little bit more vocal as a leader and, and really kind of taking control of the offense. On the defensive side, uh, you guys are losing uh, D3Football.com All-American linebacker and Max Nasowitz, uh, one of uh, about five, maybe six at times senior starters. So what does the defense look like coming back? Yeah, we you know, we took, uh, again, a couple kids with graduation up front. We really you know, uh, lost a lot of guys. But, uh, again, coming through the winter workouts and, and spring drills and whatnot, we have some guys that are really stepping up and some young guys, so they're going to get thrown into the fire early. But – they're, they're playing with great energy and, and great passion, and they're excited for the opportunity to, to step into those roles. And, you know, obviously it's hard to replace a guy like Max, and, and, you know, I don't know if anybody can. You know, he's the first two-time All-American since we had, since Jack Quinn back in, you know, uh, the early 80s. So um, obviously he was a tremendous player, and we're, we're hoping that he gets an opportunity to, to continue to play, and uh, he'll find out a little bit more this weekend. And, you know, he's been uh, – getting some tryouts at both fullback as well as an outside linebacker position. So that would be a tremendous opportunity for him and an unbelievable opportunity for our program to, to celebrate that. Uh, but we've got, uh, again, some really good linebackers coming back. feel pretty good that the strength of our team is going to be a little bit more on the back end of things defensively as those younger guys get their, their reps and kind of learn the positions and, and, again, play to speed, which is uh, – difficult to replicate but it's not going to be because of because of lack of energy or lack of passion up front those kids will get after it and they're going to play hard and and that's the expectation we told them that you know we don't expect you to be max nasowitz we expect you to be better and so that's the mindset we want with all those kids as they uh as they continue to grow into the positions but you know we got uh christian zadi coming back at um we got dom traversa coming back we have nick welsh marlo scott we got a couple corners and tamaris howard and a couple of young guys, Andrew Perio, who's injured all last year, that we feel is, is going to be able to step, step up at, at another corner position, and Luke Jimenez. So we've got some good young guys that, uh, that I think are going to really evolve within the defense as well. Storied program Springfield and, and another place at which the transition goes from longtime coach to one of his former players taking the program over, much like when we talked with Jeremy Urban on our last episode. Keeping the coaching changeover in-house means that the tradition which Springfield is built on won't be changing anytime soon, Keith. Yeah, and maybe more than ever, the under center triple option is advantageous because defenses don't face it often enough. And that three days of midweek practice is just a tough window to learn how to go against it. In an era when the most familiar option that that teams see week to week is that quarterback read out of the shotgun or the pistol, seeing that triple option with the fullback two yards deep right up on you, like Sarah Solo said, that's an eye opener. I remember um, you know, back when I played, which again, we're making ourselves feel old here, uh, back in the mid-90s, we used to have to play that, that Gettysburg and their wing tee. And it was like week five or six of the season, and we used to just throw out everything we'd learned and done up to that point and crash course the wing tee that week of practice. And we came up with some crazy counteractive moves that, that we'd put in, like corners would take on the pulling guards to free the outside linebackers to make the tackles. But the whole point of the offense is not really the deception, it's precision. So you can know what's coming, 
But unless the defense, if, if we're, unless you're in the right spot for every play for an entire game, eventually they're going to gas you. And I, I feel like that kind of, that, 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 um, that there's still this bit of creativity alive in a game that has, you know, it's mostly gone from under center and it's, it's added package plays and so much sophistication in the passing game, the run and the runs that, that start from under center, uh, you know, it's not dead. For every Augustana, which once had a, a wing T identity, same as Springfield did with the does with the triple option. For every Augustana that moves away from it, there's a Washington and Lee innovating new looks with the flex bone and piling up big rushing numbers. We've written about it at Salisbury, at Maine Maritime, at Ripon, at SUNY Maritime. It works in D3, and I'll give you one good reason. I remember talking to Clayton Kendrick Holmes from SUNY Maritime about this, about recruiting linemen. Uh, this is several years ago, and I feel like I've had similar conversations with Sherman Wood at, uh, at, at Salisbury. One of the reasons you know, it works, and this is more Clayton Kendrick Holmes than I think Salisbury. I think Salisbury likes to, to try to recruit big linemen, but one of the reasons it works for, for SUNY Maritime is because they can recruit smaller guys as linemen, and, and it works um, because the first wave of recruiting – is the big schools and they'll come in and get all the physically gifted guys even if they haven't fully grown into their bodies yet they take all those guys and then fcs schools come through and d2 and and even the you know the the best of the d3 schools come and take all the 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 linemen who are you know maybe not quite perfect size or you know a step slow don't have great footwork but they could they have some some traits that they could grow into all those linemen Ask any coach across D3 and they'll tell you that, you know, the key to getting their offense right is getting those offensive linemen because you just can't stack them up like you can stack up skill kids at this level. So when, when, when SUNY Maritime goes out recruiting, they're looking at kids who are like 240 pounds. And one of the selling points is, look, you're, you're big enough to play in this kind of offensive scheme because you need, you need to be able to get out and move. You need to pull. Um, you need to be able to, to hit, you know, hit your blocks from different angles and, and, and you don't just need to kind of road grade the guy in front of you. And, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons that it works because they're not looking for 280, 300 pounders, guys who are 6'4", 6'5", or even, you know, 6'2", and, and, and kind of physically gifted. They can work with a, a, a kid who uh, is just sort of decent size or is a high school offensive lineman size and then they teach him what he needs to be effective in that offense. So even though there's so much behind the line of scrimmage from the snap, you know, as you talked about in the interview uh, with Mike getting, getting the quarterback reads down, there's just so much for him to do. All the running backs have their own uh, reads to make and they have to hit everything exactly on time. There's also a lot going on up front and and it really starts in, in the recruiting process. We'll be back with another podcast in about a month, but before we go, uh, you know, a little bit of talk about what's coming up around the corner for us. Uh, one of the big projects for the next few weeks is to expand out our archives. Since the we started the website back in 1999, we've always had archived schedules and results dating that far back. But we're making a push here to go back even further and start by picking up all of the 1998 schedules. So, you know, there isn't a central clearinghouse for that that's electronic and has things like game dates and locations. I, I, that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? That's what we've been doing for the last 17 years. Uh, but we've contacted schools to try to get that information collected and posted. So, you know, some of that stuff might sound kind of geeky to you and it might be good for archives and that sort of thing. But one of the things that I've noticed, Keith, in kind of going through 1998 and revisiting it is how much things have changed and, and changed in ways that we didn't even really take note of. I mean, obviously, there are obvious changes uh, like different conference alignments and expanded playoffs and automatic bids and such, all of which came in starting in 1999. 
But one interesting thing to me that I had not realized was back then, conferences didn't really schedule their games in a block at the end of the season. And there were lots of non-conference games in late October, even in leagues where you had an even number of teams. Uh, stuff like uh, FNM playing Hobart in week seven after having already played three Centennial Conference games, or Sol Ross State playing Southwest Assemblies of God. Uh, oh, that's not a change. That happens still all the time. Uh, but you get the picture. Uh, games on the schedule versus Mansfield and Azusa Pacific and Sacred Heart and all sorts of schools that D3s don't play anymore, let alone games against um, you know teams such as LaSalle that don't even have football anymore. Yeah, we used to always play a week seven game against Davidson, which was a one double A at the time. And that actually that was the correct term for it back then. Um, and that was like kind of a weird break from from the conference grind in, in the ODAC. I, I think you're right, Pat, that in a in a you know, big picture way, you step back or bird's eye view, maybe. Um D three is really conferenced up and and the main impetus for that is to to make scheduling easier, to avoid these weird games where you have to search in October for someone else who has an open week. You know, everyone has an open week, week one or week two or, you know, even week three, pretty much the first few weeks of September, you can play anybody. But once you get to the meat of the conference schedule, it was getting harder and harder for teams to to find opponents later in the season. So as as conferences grew to eight teams, to nine teams, to 10 teams, 10 teams means you have nine games locked in like the OAC does. Um, they don't have they don't have a scheduling problem. The OAC, you know, Mount Union will announce who who they have a home and home with somebody six years out from now, and yeah. that's it. They're done scheduling. Well, the flip side of that was Mike Drass before uh, before they joined the NJAC, and he was looking for games with anyone. He played UNC Charlotte uh, when they were a first year program, or Lynchburg was from a completely different classification, not even NCAA. Um, you know, so having to avoid that or being able to avoid that, I think is is a big thing that D three schools uh, were looking for, and one of the huge huge changes over the time we've been doing this is uh, is that, you know, the conferences make a lot more sense. And in fact, if the whole SAA, SCAC thing didn't happen, everything would probably right now make perfect sense, which conference it's in and, and there'd be no kind of random straggling independence. All those teams finally conferenced up and they're in places that, that make sense. There's no like Huntingdon in the SLEAC just because it needs to be. Well, there, I mean, there are always going to be a few of those, but um I think that's one of the major changes, you know, along with like teams uh, all switching over from grass to turf is a big change in the game since then. And of course, a lot of the, the schemes have changed over time. But well, yeah, I mean, digging back into 98, Pat, if you ever if you get back to 97 or, or 96, let me know. There's a couple of games I want to click on. <laughs> I will definitely let you know. Uh, there's a couple of games there that I, I would probably forget and they may be the same ones. Um, by the time, let's see, by the time we chat with you folks next, also the 2015-16 Division Three sports season as a whole will be over. Um, and Keith and I will have started to take a more intense look at uh, what will go into kickoff 2016. Or, you know, we'll be talking about taking a more intense look. Maybe June, uh, first week of June might be too early for that, but not too far. Uh, so that'll be the 12th season we've done kickoff. And for those of you who don't know, that's an online season preview of all Division Three teams, 249 of them this year with Nebraska Wesleyan coming into the fold. I'm pretty sure we'll have some early bird pricing this year as well. So look out for that coming in June. And that was the Around the Nation podcast, number 148, released May 4th, 2016. Thanks for listening in and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the offseason. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it. That will help other Division Three football fans find it. And thank you for following Division Three football on D3football.com. I feel like I don't even have any outtakes to drop in at the end.
Yeah, what are we doing? Man? <laughs> Nothing will ever be the same. What are we doing with our lives? Um, we we got we saved our jokes for uh, on air that time. Some, some couple couple bunnies. I laughed at you saying how old you feel. <laughs> I only have like twelve edit points here in this. This is gonna be. No, that's actually that's worse than. I was gonna say twelve sounds like a lot. Three sounds like a good number.